I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDR. My guest is A.J. Bond. He's a writer, filmmaker, shame educator, and the author of Discomfortable, What is Shame and How Do We Break Its Hold?, which is a deep exploration into the evolutionary role of shame in our lives and the wide-ranging impact it has on our lives, both negative and positive. So, AJ, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Thanks for having me. This is an absolutely fascinating book. Going into it, I had no idea of the wide-ranging implications of shame in our lives. And I came away thinking that shame seems to be like a shape-shifting demon, a trickster, a little child, and a teacher all in one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's very true. My mentors at the Center for Healing Shame, Brett Lyon and Sheila Rubin, talk about it as a multi-headed hydra. And sort of like every time you think you've cut off one head of shame, two grow back. (laughs) Yeah. And it's also fascinating how you contextualize most of our lives in the context, you know, most of the issues that we, we deal with in our lives, most of the challenges in terms of shame. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah, I'm just like, I see shame everywhere I look. And, you know, given that we are such a fundamentally social animal, and shame is such an important regulator, you know, pressuring us to maintain those social connections, it makes sense that it it has its fingers kind of in everything, because we're just that social of a creature. So maybe we could begin by having you talk about your own personal experience of shame and how you came to see shame as being so important that you came to think that everybody should be educated about it and also why it's called the master emotion. Mm-hmm. For me, I think it really stems back to being gay and as a child, trying to fit myself into a heteronormative culture. And there was just clearly a difference between me and my family and my peers. And I didn't see a lot of positive representations at that time in the media. So there was just an abundance of shame saying, you know, you got to do something to fit in. You have to hide this. You have to forget about this. You have to change this. So that kind of created at a time in my life when my brain was really still kind of wiring itself to the world. It created a lot of shame that just sort of became my norm. 
And then it wasn't until in my 30s when I started going to therapy that I started to see that that's what it was. It was shame that was really controlling me. And I had this amazing kind of breakthrough because of that, wherein I realized that a lot of those messages just weren't true in a kind of objective sense. It's like these were sort of cultural opinions that were plaguing me. And I just had this like kind of few weeks of bliss realizing that a lot of these disempowering messages about my life and my worth and all the things I thought I had to do to fit in, that it wasn't like part of, you know, nature that I had to be these things. It was just cultural messages. And it was so empowering that I just started talking to people about shame. And it was sort of just gradually discovering that it was everywhere. And every time I spoke about it, people really understood it and resonated. And I started to just be like, wow, this this emotion that no one talks about is kind of running the show for everyone. It's not just me to varying degrees. We all want to fit in. And shame is there telling us in different ways when it thinks we might not be fitting in. And in terms of like the master emotion, I think because we're such a social animal, many researchers believe, and I think that this is probably true, that like our most core need is simply to belong, to fit in, to be part of the group, because all of our other survival needs are kind of met within that group context. So shame is really one of the most powerful emotions in terms of regulating everything that's important to us. And it also has power over our other emotions, is the belief, that it can actually kind of diminish our other emotions in order to control us. So I think that's why it gets this name of the master emotion. And you say that shame is closely related to trauma and our fight and flight, freeze and please response, and that it has the power to literally reshape our brain. Yeah, because we're such a social animal, being in social danger is just as much of a safety threat to our body, it seems, as, you know, seeing a bear wandering towards you. In both of those situations, seeing like an external threat, or in the case of shame, it's more like we're detecting some kind of internal threat where we think that something about us or something that we've done is endangering our group inclusion. And in both of those instances, our amygdala, which is this sort of like ancient protective part of our brain that we share with many different animals, and it has this kind of like built-in reaction to threat, which you might have heard some people would call fight or flight, or some people expand it to fight, flight, freeze, and please. And our amygdala basically takes over when it senses either an external or an internal threat to our physical safety or our social safety, and it shuts off the most rational part of our brain. It shuts off what they call the prefrontal cortex, which is where we do logical thinking and reasoning. And I think where our kind of like modern adult mature sense of self really seems to reside in the prefrontal cortex. So in shame, our brain kind of shuts that area down and gives us a very limited menu of options for how to act. And one of the big inspirations for my work comes from Donald Nathanson, who works with a theory called affect theory. And 
he talks about the compass of shame, which is four reactions that basically come up every time we get hit by a certain level of shame. And those reactions are intended to sort of like keep us safe, but they're often quite rudimentary and clumsy. We're either like going into attack mode and attacking people around us, you know, which might be like physical violence or just sort of getting angry at them or shaming them or blaming them. Or, and this is very kind of a common shame reaction, we'll attack ourselves. We'll blame ourselves for the shame and we'll have that inner critic kind of berating us. Or, and this is very similar to a physical threat, we'll just withdraw. We'll run away. We'll avoid the situation. And the final point of the compass is denial. When we act like, I'm, I'm not feeling any shame at all. Oh, no, nothing, nothing's happening here. And we kind of like repress the shame and hide it because shame itself doesn't want to be seen because we associate it so closely with there being something wrong with us that we don't want anyone to know we're even feeling shame. It's almost incriminating to reveal our shame. So in those ways, shame really kind of takes over our system and our brain and turns us into kind of a different person while we're feeling it. Yeah, it's so terrifying and fascinating at the same time. Like when we're in it, it's so terrifying. There's this wonderful line that you say that basically our body or limbic system believes that we will actually die if we're rejected by anyone particularly family, mm -hmm. friends, or the community around us. And that actually we've evolved to be that way. Yeah. Yeah, I think it all goes back to imagining that our system evolved while we were hunter-gatherers, which was a very different world, a very different life. We spent our whole lives in one group of apparently 50 to 150 people and if we got kicked out of that group, we were goners. You know, we, we were not going to survive for long on our own in the wilderness as a hunter-gatherer. So it made sense back then that we would evolve an emotion like shame that did everything in its power to convince us, you know, you need to fit in. You need to belong. You need to get along with the group. And you need to do that to keep yourself alive and you need to do that to keep the group safe. Everybody needs to be on the same page. So I think we more or less are still tuned as if we were hunter-gatherers. But now, of course, we live in a very different world. So shame, which is a useful emotion, you know, it makes us want to fit in and belong and it helps us care for others. But it's almost like it's just a little bit too powerful for the world we now live in, where social rejection does not equal death. And so now our culture really controls us through shame. I mean, it's largely unconscious ways. And, mm -hmm. and you also talk about how our upbringing is very similar to the way people are brainwashed in cults. Yeah. I think as a child, as I understand it, humans are a really unique animal in that we're born with unfinished brains. And this allows us an incredible amount of flexibility, if you think about it, because it means whatever situation we're born into, our brain and our body is going to adapt very uniquely for that world and be kind of very adept at surviving in that unique situation. Whereas other animals are born 
with kind of more rigid instincts so that they kind of behave the same way no matter where they find themselves. So on the upside, humans are these incredible, flexible adapters. But the downside is that because we're wiring our brain to the world around us, not just the physical world, but the social world, our brain is literally kind of taking the subjective opinions of the people around it, our family, our friends, the media, and that kind of becomes the basis for how our brain is formed. It's, it's sort of like creates our sense of reality. So it's a collaboration wherein, you know, we want to fit in and our culture wants us to fit in and we're all just naturally kind of brainwashing ourselves to fit with each other. And it creates a beautiful sense of adaptability and a beautiful sense of connection. But once we become adults, we start to see that not all of the messages were healthy or true. You know, my example of growing up in a heteronormative culture, and I, I really had the message that you couldn't be gay. It was, it was a bad thing to be. And now as an adult, I see that that isn't true. But nonetheless, to some non-trivial degree, the structure of my brain is still conditioned to react to shame when my sexuality is visible in public. That's still a part of me. So there's a kind of frustrating old structure in my brain that can produce shame and can produce frustration. You know, I kind of want it to evolve more quickly. The logic center of my brain can see the truth, can see that these old ideas aren't really true anymore. But older, like you said, the limbic system, the amygdala, older, more unconscious emotional parts of my brain tend to still have that conditioning lingering. So it's been a real process for me of learning to see those old conditioned patterns and accept them so that I can find ways to work around them. Yeah, yeah. And that's something that we're going to get into. I think back, I think when I was around four years old, my grandmother introduced me to shame. It was my first memory of shame, of actually being shamed by my grandmother and a, a four-year-old girl. Wow. Because she actually introduced me to that old game of playing doctor and then turned it around on me and shamed me and told on me. And the effect that it had on me was profound. It, it's affected my entire life. I mean, as you say, those old shame patterns or shame wounds, they don't go away. They, you know, they, they linger and they have these mm -hmm. deep unconscious effects. And even, you know, after going through therapy and having deep insight into it and seeing through it, it still has this effect. It has a kind of knee-jerk effect or or it's like this underlying programming that you can't erase from the mm -hmm. from the, the brain from the the biocomputer mm -hmm. you just have to find a way to deal with it every time its head rises up yeah yeah well i'm really grateful that you shared this vulnerable story and i hear stories like this in my coaching practice a lot and it's incredible how formative these early exploratory experiences are. And 
it almost always ends with a parent coming in and shaming the children. And that our little brains wire themselves in that moment. Oh, this is really important. This is, you know, this is creating disconnection with a parent. I really need to learn that this is bad or that I did something wrong or perhaps I've been tainted by this experience. So it's like a very common shaming situation. And, you know, our brain has some neuroplasticity. I do think that these things can gradually shift. But the analogy that comes up for me is thinking about like our very first language. Our first language is sort of like the reality through which we comprehend the world, through which we think and create logic and interact. And you can see a different language and start to learn it. But your first language is like really powerfully baked in. And so that's the kind of deep level of learning that we're dealing with here. It's like a first language. And if we want to learn a new language that says something more empowering, it's going to be very, very gradual and a lot of work to just keep reminding ourselves and kind of reorienting to a new truth. It's going to take, you know, like years, really. And so it's about like, how do we have the healthiest relationship and the most awareness of our old shame language while working diligently towards a future where those old messages just start to get quieter and quieter each time we see them and accept them, but then move beyond them, kind of like say, oh, that's the past. That's not true anymore. I now believe this. So I think very gradually we're on a journey away from that stuff. But if you try to push it away, it's counterproductive, I find. Mm -hmm. Right. It seems that a lot of our motivation in life is actually to escape those terrible feelings of shame. Yeah. And as you say, when you try to push it away, it acts kind of like the old tar baby that you can't get away from it. So let's get into this term from the title of your book, Discomfortable. What does that mean? Yeah, it's so true what you're saying that I think, you know, shame controls us by all the strategies we use to avoid feeling it, to deny it, to numb it, to resist it, to ignore it. Those actually kind of play in to the old amygdala-driven type of defensive strategies or old patterns from our childhood conditioning that our system thinks will keep us safe. But really, they're so geared to the past, either you know our childhood or being a hunter-gatherer, that they're not actually the most effective strategies for a mature adult to not be controlled by shame. So discomfortable is based on this realization I had very slowly that I actually had to accept my shame and I had to get comfortable with the discomfort of it because it was my resistance of the discomfort that kept allowing shame to control me. Every time I couldn't handle that pain, I would go into one of these defensive patterns. So it was these moments where I did something that felt so counterintuitive at the time to just stop and kind of accept the discomfort of shame. And, you know, some people think it's perhaps our most unpleasant emotion. 
So it's not an easy task to get discomfortable with it. It's not like it ever starts to feel good, but you definitely can start to build up a kind of tolerance of it. And the way that I started to do that was to honor that it's always temporary. All of our emotions are temporary. When you're feeling shame, it kind of feels like, oh no, this is going to last forever if I don't do something. But that's not really true. And I found that if I just sat with the unpleasant feeling and allowed myself to feel it with a lot of self-compassion, like, I know this hurts, but let's just feel it through. Let's just try to hear its messages. And I found that it really helped to kind of like talk about it, to express what I was feeling, or to even like let it come out through emotion. Like sometimes it would need tears or even like a kind of sobbing. Or sometimes it would be like I really needed to let some anger out to fully allow the shame to come through. And I found that when I allowed myself to sit with that discomfort with a sense of acceptance, it passed more quickly. And once it was gone, it was like a veil had been lifted from my eyes And I could suddenly see so much more clearly that I wasn't really usually even in as much danger as the shame made it seem. The shame makes it feel dangerous and urgent. But once you let that feeling, you know, give you its emotional message and pass, you see with fresh eyes like, oh, there's no hurry here. There's no like immediate danger. Even if I did make a mistake that brought on the shame, I have lots of time to think of thoughtful and compassionate ways to make amends or to apologize or to redeem myself. So I just found that there was a counterintuitive utility to embracing shame and showing it a lot of love and saying, yeah, hey, we can feel you. That's okay. And then it would just pass. And it was very liberating. And the way you're describing it now almost makes it sound easy, but shame has this kind of shape-shifting ability to hide itself and make it extremely difficult for us to even see it and recognize it Mm -hmm. for what it is when those feelings first hit us. And when they hit us, it's like a sucker punch or a gut punch, and immediately it's like we see red or we can't see. Our vision shuts down. And we're virtually incapable of making that choice to to sort of lean into the shame and allow ourselves to just be present with it. So it's actually an incredibly challenging thing to do. Yeah, I appreciate you mentioning that because it's so true and so important. When I first started this, I couldn't pinpoint when I was in shame at the moment. It was only sometime after that I could look back and say, oh, why was I acting like that? And I sort of did like a very gradual process of working backwards to try to get more and more skillful at noticing shame when it was coming up in the moment. And I find that you're right. Shame has so many tricks to make it really hard to capture it in the moment. You know, one of the first things it will do is push us into this threat response system that I talked about. Like our amygdala takes over, it shuts off our logic center, and that creates a lot of confusion and kind of like a freeze state where we kind of lose our train of thought and we're just sort of like stuck in this kind of confused and painful moment of shock. 
And then when we go into that threat response system, it just seems like, yeah, like alarm bells are going off saying like, do something quick. And all of us tend to kind of have one strategy out of that compass that I mentioned earlier that we go to. And so for me, I go into please. And it seems just like confusing and alarming and utterly important that I sycophantically grovel to everyone to try to win myself back into the group. And so for me, it wasn't until after that threat response and that people pleasing had died down that I was able to look back at my actions and say, wow, that wasn't really me. And I was like, wow, so I must have been in my threat response. And I must have been in shame just before that because there was no physical threat present. I think that's an important thing to ask yourself. Like if you can notice that you went into one of these defensive patterns, you know, it might often be coupled with like that elevated heart rate and constriction of the throat. And sometimes you'll actually feel like you want to burst into tears. When you kind of notice that you were just in that heightened, threatened state, if there was no actual physical danger, I think it's a very good chance that it was triggered by shame, by social danger, by an internal sense of threat. So then you can kind of work backwards and say, okay, what triggered this? What was the comment or look or mistake that happened? And right after that triggering event, what did I feel? Was there a sensation? Because that will be the moment of shame. And so it was a process of kind of gradually noticing when I was in threat, gradually being able to notice the threat response happen in real time, and then gradually get closer and closer to ground zero of shame. And it's then that I can do the discomfortable method of applying a lot of self-compassion. And when I can actually catch the shame in the moment and say, this is shame, and embrace it and accept it and not act on it, but just sort of let it pass, then I don't have to go into my threat response system at all. So that's a really powerful place to get to because the shame reaction will be quite short if you can catch it and accept it. And then in the actual present moment of whatever triggered it, you have more options that come up for how you can respond as opposed to, you know, a few days later, realizing you were in shame and realizing you were in threat, and then kind of having to go back and undo whatever relational damage might have come from over people pleasing, or damage to your own sense of like self-trust, that you can trust that you won't people please, but you will actually meet your own needs. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. And also, it can have profoundly damaging consequences to our lives if we go into a violent response, which is something that shame has this incredible ability to trigger in us, which can have long-term consequences. Yeah. There's a really well-respected violence researcher by the name of Dr. James Gilligan, and he actually worked in one of the most dangerous prisons in America, trying to reform it. And as he was working with these prisoners, he discovered that a lot of them had a deep core shame wound that was leading to a lot of the violence. And it makes sense when you think about shame triggering our fight or flight reflex that a lot of people's shame will trigger this fight reaction, which can literally materialize as violence. So James Gilligan discovered that we were creating this kind of 
cycle of violence because our whole system of punishment was extremely shaming. So these people who already had deep shame wounds from childhood that led to violence would then feel intense shaming through the punishment process, which would incite even more violence. So it's very true that allowing ourselves to react unconsciously to shame, to act on it and to believe what it says, can really lead us to behaviors that I don't even think of as like truly us. It's like allowing our lizard brain to take over. And so that's why I think it's so important to do this work of becoming self-aware of our shame patterns so that we can spot them and not act on them and not believe them. And that's very similar to these old patterns of childhood conditioning. It doesn't mean that you don't feel that old urge to get violent or to people please. That's always there. But once you can spot it and recognize that you can just feel it instead of acting on it and let it pass, it allows you to kind of have this both end where you can accept your conditioning and work around it and then still be the mature, compassionate adult that you want to be. Yeah. There's this really interesting dynamic about shame. It's like seeing ourselves through the way we think others see us. And when mm -hmm. we go into a shame response, a really difficult shame response, that can make us see the other person almost like a mortal enemy. Because yeah. again, what's happening inside is that we're totally unaware of the shame response on a conscious level. We're just having a very powerful threat response to it. Yes. Such a good point. It's when we don't see these unconscious emotional and instinctive forces for what they are, that they trick us into thinking that they are us, that it's our opinion or our true core desire that we need to violently react against someone or that we actually believe someone is our enemy. When really, once you start to get more self-awareness around these impulses, it's almost like you're being contaminated by them. Your whole view of the world is being colored by shame lenses that distort your thinking and literally like shut off your logic center such that you can't see other possibilities. And there's like this powerful shift that happens once you start to really investigate your shame and see its patterns and its mechanisms that you realize it's not you. It's like you're being hijacked. And once you can get familiar with the feeling, like the embodied emotional feeling of being hijacked, then you can be like, oh, I should not make any important decisions right now. I actually can't fully trust my own sense-making in this moment because I can feel that I am, you know, contaminated by shame. This happens to me all the time. I was recently listening to someone else lecture on shame, and they were doing such a beautiful, eloquent job describing shame that I started to feel shame because I was feeling envious that, oh, they're smarter than me, and they know more about shame than I do, and, oh, like, I'm going to lose all of my utility in the world if this person sort of, like, is better than me. And that shame contamination 
started to create all of this judgment. My brain really wanted me to find some flaw in what this person was saying or find some flaw in the way they spoke or the way they dressed. And fortunately, I was able to see it for what it was and say, none of this is accurate. This is inspired by shame, AJ. So you're going to have to just kind of like feel through this and let this emotion pass. And then on the other side, I'm sure you'll see that there's nothing to be competitive about with this person. And that's exactly what happened. So I think it's so important to look at shame and to take it from being your opinion and turn it into just a part or an object in your psychological system. This is where therapy like parts work becomes really empowering because you start to see that all of these impulses are parts and that you yourself are something bigger, something behind it all that has some agency as long as you can see the different parts and choose not to believe them or act on them. It's really fascinating how many different forms of therapy, as well as spiritual practice, work very much in the way of learning to unravel these reactive patterns and to become essentially more non-reactive to them. Yeah, yeah. And I love that you mentioned spirituality here because I've been on a whole journey as a child kind of like rejecting religion because I deemed it homophobic. I had this view that all religion was homophobic, so I really rejected it. But now as I interact with people and talk to them about their shame, I see that a lot of people have a really beautiful relationship with a sense of God as an all-loving being. And there's something that heals their shame in that relationship because, you know, shame is saying, belong to the group at all costs. But these people have it in their brain that they are always loved by this God that unites them with everything. So it sort of like inherently counteracts the shame message that they don't belong. If they can cultivate a relationship with, and it doesn't have to be a literal God. For some people, it's like a sense of oneness with all of life itself. And so there's like these spiritual ways that we can start to really honor our deep, inextricable interconnection with life or with the cosmos or with humanity or with God that can be a really powerful antidote to shame's message that we're all alone or that we don't belong or that we have to change something to fit in. So that is a really powerful kind of journey that I'm excited to explore more. But yeah, at the same time, therapy practices like parts work or somatic practices that have helped me get in touch with what my emotions like shame feel like in my body so I can spot them and not be controlled by them have been really helpful, like somatic experiencing things. And also I've been doing a lot of practices that come out of the integral movement, some known as authentic relating, some people call it circling. And these are practices where in an interpersonal context, you explore present moment emotion, and it just helps you to get more and more self-aware about what comes up when you interact with other humans, which is very much, again, related to trying to belong and trying to connect and fit in, which is all connected to shame. Which requires an ability to stay present even in the face of these powerful emotional feelings like shame. Exactly, yeah. 
which is so, so difficult. I guess to begin with, we have to learn how to do that with easier things. Yeah. Like mindfulness practice, you know, begin with just your thoughts. You know, it, it can be hard enough to not get completely hijacked by our own thinking, let alone our emotions. Absolutely. I look at it as like going to the gym, sort of. And when you start at the gym, you want to start really light. And it's a good analogy because, you know, at the gym, your body is often producing a pain reaction saying, hey, this hurts. Isn't this unhealthy? But we know in our logic center, no, this this is actually pain that will lead to more health. So we kind of want to do the same thing with shame, starting in very small cases of shame Instead of running from them, like our body is saying, like, hey, shouldn't we run from this shame? Being like, no, no, we actually, we're going to sit with this little bit of shame. And each time we sit with a little bit of shame, we're building up our shame resilience and allowing ourselves to handle wider and wider amplitudes of that discomfort. So it can be really powerful to just start to look for the tiniest little shaming moments I think of shame as a spectrum. Depending on the amount of the feeling that's released in your body, it might just start on the low end as a bit of shyness or blushing or a little bit of self-consciousness. And then it can kind of get into embarrassment and what we might call shame itself. And then on the, you know, high doses of this feeling can feel like humiliation and mortification and exile. So I would start at the very low end and any time that you sense yourself feeling disconnection or like someone's not listening or not paying attention or like you worry that they're not fully respecting you or there's some judgment coming, there's almost certainly going to be a little bit of shame and discomfort there. And those can be the practice moments to say like, can I notice, find, and kind of just like feel and embrace that little bit of shame instead of you know, talking over it or brushing it off or, you know, cheering ourselves up or something like that, changing the subject. See if you can like actually take a moment to just sit with it and notice it. And that's the place to start to kind of start to build up your tolerance. And you'll start to just see these moments more and more. And, and I want to note that when I get hit with a high level of shame, I can't always sit with it. I can't always get discomfortable with it. Sometimes I'll get knocked into my threat response system and I'll go into one of my defensive patterns. And again, it won't be till sometime later that I'll be like, oh, wow, yeah, I got hijacked. And that's okay. You know, I I have to be careful not to shame myself for not being always an expert at dealing with shame. So it's like part of this journey with shame As you said, the way that shame is always sort of like sneakily morphing is that you'll be trying to work on your shame and you'll fail at it. And then you'll find yourself shaming yourself for not having perfectly dealt with shame. And then you have to do the whole process again. You have to say, oh, I got to accept this shame too and not believe it and let it pass and give myself a lot of compassion. And you just sort of like keep catching shame in subtler and subtler ways. It's the same pattern, but it just gets smaller and subtler and quieter. And I think it's an ongoing journey and that's okay. 
Yeah, I think it's a lifelong journey because it, as yeah. you say, it takes years. I mean, I would go so far as to say it takes decades. <laughs> yeah. It's such a difficult, challenging thing to deal with, to face, and to be able to really stay present with. Yeah. And this instinct we have to belong, you know, to feel accepted and be part of the herd. And, you know, this desire that we all have to be loved and to be fully seen. And yet shame also makes us not want to be fully seen because almost all of us have things in us or think that there are things about ourselves that if anybody else saw them, they wouldn't accept us or we would be rejected and we wouldn't be loved. So there's this push-pull paradox of needing to be fully seen and also hiding and not wanting to be fully seen. Yeah, I think that's a really, really important point is that like privacy is really important to us because it's connected to the shame that we might feel if our secrets are exposed or misconstrued. And that, you know, again, connects to fear of death. So like we have this like sacred need for privacy and we have this sort of balance wherein when we show something that's really true and we gain acceptance, it feels like people saw it and accepted it and validated it and like us nonetheless, then our body will reward us with really wonderful feelings of like belonging and connection and love. And that's, you know, the positive reinforcement toward fitting in. Like, yes, you're doing it. But at the same time, we have shame saying, uh-oh, but there's certain things that you might reveal that might get you kicked out. So you're always kind of like doing this dance of trying to figure out, like, is it safe to reveal these other parts? And if I reveal them, will it be met with connection and acceptance? Or will I be rejected and judged and go into shame? And each of us kind of has to decide what is comfortable for us on that scale. But it's worth noting that when we can find certain people that we really trust, that we can share absolutely everything with and receive acceptance and validation, it's a feeling of belonging and self-belonging too, like belonging with other and like self-acceptance for having said it, that is one of the most empowering and pleasant feelings that we have as a social animal. So I personally am on a journey where I'm trying to reveal more and more with the people who really matter and who I believe that I have the trust and the relationship with to handle those truths because I know that that's going to be really pleasant and empowering. And it's also worth noting that when people come to me and reveal vulnerable truths, I now see how important it is for me to try to create a space of openness for them. You know, it's not that I have to agree with them or condone them. It's more just willingness to hold space for their truth and say, okay, like, thank you for sharing that. I'm happy to see the full you so that I can also create that sense of connection for them. So I kind of long for a world in which we are all both more open towards others and more open about what's going on in us so that we can help each other feel these feelings of empowerment and connection. And it's worth noting that the reason why I might not be able to hear someone's truth is because it will stimulate shame in me. 
you know, if they've made a mistake that I would feel a lot of shame for making, just hearing them talk about it might bring up a lot of shame in me. And when I feel that shame, it might coerce me into judging and rejecting them, which creates that disconnection and that pain, and then it will shame them. So by learning to sit with my shame, it actually allows me to be more compassionate and open with other people and create more of that connection. Because I can just say, like, yeah, hearing that is bringing up some shame in me. You know, I have my own issues with what you're describing. But I'm able to accept this shame and sit with it. And by accepting my shame reaction and sitting with it, I can also accept you and what it is that you said that brought on this shame. So learning to get discomfortable with shame, difficult and gradual as it is, has real big implications for our ability to create community and be open and be compassionate. Yeah, that was something that I found to be really fascinating, that connection between empathy and shame and how they are so intertwined in this very ironic way. Yeah, yeah. And it's so hard to feel shame that when someone else is feeling shame, it's really hard to empathize with them because it means we have to feel some shame with them. We have to admit to having shame and maybe saying like, I've made similar kinds of mistakes. And so it can be so hard to join someone in that shamey place. So we'd rather kind of tell them, oh, you don't have to feel shame about that. We'd rather kind of like tell them to put their shame away. Or we might go into judgment and actually shame them. Like, yeah, you should be ashamed of that. I'm going to avoid feeling shame about it by kind of like going into that attack mode. So empathy is like so powerful for healing shame. But it's so difficult to do around shame because it requires feeling the pain of shame with someone. But when you do do it, it says to them, you know, shame is telling you that you're different and bad and alone. But I have that same feeling. So you're not different. We both have it. And we're not all bad. We're the same. We're normal. And we're inherently not alone because we're here in this moment talking about how we are the same. So empathy is a tricky thing to do but it is a really powerful antidote to shame. And it feels so amazingly good when we connect with another person around shame in that way. Yeah, it is just the most surprising and healing feeling because shame makes you feel so alone, so isolated. And then to hear another person say like, yeah, I've done exactly this, it always surprises me. It's like, you have? And it's just such a relief, like, oh, I'm not alone. I'm not the only one who's made this kind of mistake or who's thought this kind of way or felt these feelings. It's just like, as a social animal, that's the the golden ticket right there. So it's like, now that I understand how shame works, I really want to try to meet people in their shame. And it's not about giving advice. It's not about cheering them up. It's not about fixing or changing anything. It's actually by like meeting them down in that painful, unpleasant place, going there with them and just being like, yeah, let's let's be here together that lifts the shame. It's quite magical. It's quite counterintuitive. It is. It is very counterintuitive. And there's another interesting counterintuitive paradox around the function of boundaries to actually help us maintain connection with others when these kind of unpleasant emotions arise. That we actually need healthy boundaries 
so that we can empathize with other people rather than go into sympathy with them, which is kind of self-sabotaging. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. It's so easy to take on someone else's shame and feel like you are being brought down by them, you know, like in some kind of objective way. And that's why it's so important to have that clear sense of boundary between you and them. So even if you are empathically feeling their shame, that doesn't mean you need to take on whatever it is they are feeling shame about, be it some kind of mistake that they've made. And I think this lack of boundaries is why we often want to shame someone. It's like we want to prove to the world that we are not implicated in what they've done by further shaming them. But we don't really need to do that. And it can be, I think, much more transformative if we join them and still be in a place of, hey, I still think you can do better. You know, by empathizing with someone and having compassion, it doesn't mean we have to agree with whatever mistake might have triggered their shame. And in fact, I think it is when someone is feeling the hope of connection and belonging that they have the most inspiration and motivation to actually change for the better, to actually make amends for that mistake or to try to redeem themselves. And so it's very counterintuitive kind of going back to that whole, you know, fighting violence by punishing them with more violence thing. To shame people who are in shame about a mistake is kind of trapping them in the belief that they're alone forever and there's no point in changing and that they're inherently forever bad. But if we can actually offer compassion and connection, we can lift them out of that badness and offer them hope of you can rejoin, you can have a do-over, you can do better. I believe in you, and I want to be in connection with the fuller, more in integrity you. So again, it's like these really counterintuitive feelings to actually like be able to put the boundaries in place that say, I don't have to take on their guilt or shame or their flaws or their mistakes. I can create a space where they can actually heal and do better by creating a relationship. And when we do that with others, it makes it so much easier to do that with ourselves. Mm-hmm. Very true. And it kind of highlights that there's this balance in shame between belonging and empathy in a group, really powerful antidote to shame. But we also want to be working towards self-belonging and self-empathy, like a sense of self-love and autonomy, wherein we can't always predict how someone's going to react. As I said before, when we reveal those vulnerable truths, of course, we, we are hoping for validation and acceptance, but we can't control someone else. And sometimes they'll go into shame and they might judge us and reject us. And in those moments, it's so important to have cultivated a self-loving, self-accepting relationship with ourselves and our shame such that we can hold ourselves when we inevitably feel the shame of having been rejected or judged by someone else. You know, that will inevitably produce shame. But when we've created a relationship where we feel that shame and accept it and accept ourselves, it can be the kind of like support we need to keep us going and keep us okay until we can find someone else out there who will accept us. 
So we're kind of always trying to find this balance with shame of reaching out and connecting with others, but also seeing and accepting as much of ourselves as we can. So we have both sides of that defense against the loneliness of shame. Mm -hmm. It's also fascinating how we've created this dynamic tension between those things. And you say that we invented shame and we invented love to help us survive. And it creates this kind of dynamic tension that in a way, it seems like it's moving us through life to engage with all of these things so that we can grow and evolve in ways that perhaps we can't even imagine. Yeah. There's a kind of a motivational nexus between the repulsion of shame and the attraction of love that pushes us to keep going and to keep trying to connect and to keep trying to do better or be more honest or whatever kind of journey we're personally on. And so I think it's like really important to honor that shame, as unpleasant as it is, is like a really necessary mechanism in these emotional forces that give life a sense of meaning and purpose. And, you know, without them, things I imagine would just feel kind of pointless. So there's like something about shame that's really unpleasant. But then in the relief of shame, there's intense pleasantness and joy. So it's almost like you do need that balance to have both sides. We can't just be feeling good all the time, or I imagine it would just become a neutral signal. It wouldn't feel good anymore. So I know that in the modern world, for a lot of us, shame is a bit loud. You know, it's a bit stronger than it probably needs to be based on how safe we are in this modern society we live in. But it's also important to honor that we don't want to get rid of it. We don't want to demonize it. It really is an important part of this beautiful system that makes life the mysterious and profound experience. I think that's the word. It's an experience. And our emotions are what we experience. So I'm always trying to remind myself to give respect and acceptance and love to shame because that's the basic moment is feeling shame and accepting it and loving it so that it can pass. And that's the little metaphor that's the same for accepting myself and loving myself and the metaphor for accepting someone else's shame and being able to love them. You know, at the very beginning, we talked about shame being the master emotion and I talked about how it can control our other emotions. And I think this is probably a good place to name that in affect theory, which is the theory that I learned from Donald Nathanson in his book, Shame and Pride, it's believed that shame will actually diminish our pleasant feelings. That's how it starts to control us. You know, our pleasant feeling is motivating us towards some kind of action. But then suddenly our body deems that, oh, maybe this action is actually going to lead to people judging and rejecting us. So it brings up shame to diminish the pleasantness that was motivating us before. And that shame then pushes us away from that action into some kind of defensive response. So in that way, shame really is controlling and regulating our other emotions. And I think it can even do that with love. It can diminish your sense of love for someone else temporarily. And it diminishes your sense of love for yourself 
temporarily. So it's so important to understand that and to once again have faith, oh, this is a temporary diminishing of pleasant feelings. This is a temporary diminishing of self-love and of love for others. And I'm going to kind of hold on to the faith that even though I don't feel it right now, I still love myself and I still love life and I still love whoever it was that I may be feeling disconnection with. I'm going to honor that with a sense of faith and I'm going to accept shame and let it pass until I can see and feel that love again. I think that's so important. Yeah. And no matter how f***ed up we might think we are in any particular moment, that we are still worthy of that kind of self-acceptance and empathy. Yeah. Yeah, because, you know, self-acceptance and empathy, those, again, those are feelings. And shame makes it feel like we don't deserve those things because it literally diminishes those feelings. And when we act on that or fight with it or ignore it, we're kind of allowing it to linger. And when we ruminate, we're, you know, we're allowing that diminishing of our pleasantness to linger. So by working towards being able to just feel the pain of shame and move through it, we're actually creating space where on the other side, the feeling of self-acceptance and the feeling of self-love and the feeling of worthiness can come back and we can really start to like believe it. So there's like a cognitive component of seeing that the messages of shame are old and instinctual and from childhood and aren't really objectively true on a cognitive level. And then on a somatic level, it's about feeling through the shame so that we have the emotional space to feel the feelings connected to thoughts of worthiness and thoughts of I matter. So it's this balance between feeling and thought and shame can scramble both. And that's why we just want to kind of like trust that on the other side of these disempowering thoughts and feelings will be our true thoughts about ourselves. And there's another great line from your book where you say we don't change so much as we stop not being ourselves. Yeah, I think that's so important for shame because at its core, shame is essentially saying change something. So, you know, we really get caught up in self-improvement and self-help and changing for the better or being my best self or being my higher self. And there can be tricky little bits of shame hidden in what seem like really healthy messages of self-improvement. Because shame itself is the one saying, you need to be better or different in order to fit in. You're not enough the way you are. And instead, I think it's important to think of these journeys that we're going on as being more about uncovering our truth, uncovering our honesty and our authenticity and what's already there, such as to say that the worthiness is there all along. We're just trying to find it. Rather than creating worthiness, rather than trying to make ourselves worthy, we're just trying to uncover it, but it's already in us. And that's like a bit of faith that we can hold on to. And connected with that, you know, by being more ourselves, it's analogous to being more and more honest about the parts of ourselves that shame says we have to hide. It's the same kind of thing. To be able to be more myself is to say, 
even the parts of me that shame says are not acceptable actually are acceptable. And I am now going to reveal them for people, even though it will still bring up shame because I want to be whole and I want to be in more acceptance. And I want to find the people, it won't be everyone, but I want to find the people out there who can also accept the whole truth of me because those are the source of my sense of, as a social animal, belonging and connection and meaning that's going to create so much well-being for me. So it's almost worth putting myself out there and suffering a bit of shame along the way to find those sources of true connection because they will also bring a lot of joy once I move through the shame of weeding out the people who were not able to accept the full me. And not to mention the sense of self-acceptance that comes through that practice. So it's like all kind of intertwined in the same thing. And yeah, I truly believe that every time you think you've improved, you're really just being more of you. You're being more honest and more self-aware. Mm-hmm. And in our culture, we have this obsession with achievement and success. And as you say in the book, there's never enough. We can never achieve enough success or validation from others to actually satisfy that shame that lurks inside of us. Yeah, I think that's so true. It's sort of like this temporary strategy to hold off shame by saying, I'm getting better, I'm earning more money, I'm, I'm getting promoted. But it doesn't actually have any real impact on our shame. So it's sort of like each day you need to get more of that success and improvement to throw at shame to try to kind of keep it behind you. Whereas if you can feel that shame, if you can actually let the shame come and feel it and hear its messages then you can let them pass and decide, do I actually agree with this message even? Like, is this actually a marathon of achievement that I want to be running? Because if I'm able to find something that is authentically really bringing joy and passion and meaning into my life, that will actually be a lot more powerful in terms of transforming my shame than running from shame. So it's very, very tricky. But again, I think it's that polarity between the positive motivation of feelings of joy and the negative motivation of shame. When I'm running towards success, I am motivated by running away from shame. But when I can find my authentic passion and what authentically brings me joy, then instead of being motivated primarily by avoiding unpleasant feelings, I start to shift into being primarily motivated towards things that bring me joy. And that's a very, very subtle distinction. And we're always doing a bit of both, I think. But I think a lot of us in the modern world are tipped a little bit more to running from shame and haven't put as much focus and self-awareness and honoring the importance of saying, right, but what actually brings me genuine, authentic joy? And how can I start to reorient my life so that I'm primarily moving towards that instead of primarily moving away from pain? Mm -hmm. And also perhaps asking that question, what is it that I'm really trying to achieve here? What's the underlying motive? What is it that I most deeply want out of what I'm trying to achieve in the world. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think you'll find that behind the kind of more superficial, like, oh, well, I want to be the CEO, that behind that is almost always some message like, I want to feel worthy. I want to feel that I belong. I want to feel lovable. I want to feel good. And it all kind of comes back to this social instinct that's like, I want to feel that I have a place in the group and that I'm really connected and that I truly belong for who I am in a deep and kind of almost unconditional way. And I think a real big part of that is that you've found the actual people who will accept you wholly and you've found that self-acceptance. Because, you know, you, you just can't control other people all the time. So that real sense of deep security, I think, is a balance between seeking out and cultivating and being honest with people that really will connect with you and doing the same thing in return to them. That's so important. But also finding that within yourself. And as you already said, like it's all interconnected. The degree to which I can start to accept myself is the degree to which I can start to accept others and vice versa. So it's all kind of like a journey that's interconnected. But I think it's important to see both sides of self-acceptance and other acceptance because we can often get polarized into one where our strategy, you know, people-pleasing, all about other acceptance at any cost. And then you start to be inauthentic. Or you can get into complete I self-acceptance, but you are missing out on the joy of connecting with others. So it's all about finding that balance. And in the middle is a place where I think we're in the healthiest and most empowered relationship with shame as well. Toward the end of the book, you write about your experience with ayahuasca. And I would love to hear about the impact that that had on your perspective of shame and being discomfortable. Yeah. You know, looking back, I'm more and more amazed at how much insight came out of that experience. One of the defining features of that experience, which I don't really talk about in the book that much, was that I was on ayahuasca and I kept feeling waves of nausea, which ayahuasca is known to create. And when my body felt these waves of nausea, it would produce terrifying images like truly frightening monsters would come into my mind's eye. And I think this also kind of speaks to the connection between like the feelings in our body and the thoughts in our minds. Like when my body feels nausea, it created all these terrifying monsters to accompany it. And throughout the journey, the shaman kept saying, surrender, surrender to whatever you're seeing, surrender. So I would have to pluck up the courage to move towards these images in my mind of truly terrifying monsters. And every time I did it, the monsters, as soon as I got towards them and touched them, became lovable. So like at one point, it was these terrifying barking dogs. But when I got to them, they were licking my hand and they were, they were actually friendly. And in that moment of discovering that they were friendly, I felt deep relief and bliss. And so I kind of like learned, and this happened over and over again, that when there was something to fear, that if I moved towards it, I could actually move through it. And it's only recently that I looked back and realized that that is getting discomfortable. That was a perfect example of my body and the wisdom of this ancient medicine saying, plus the shaman, you know, if you can actually embrace an uncomfortable feeling, you can move through it to a place of relief and joy. 
And so I got a visceral example of that over and over again. And I've only recently pieced together that that's what that was. And then the other really powerful part was that as the ayahuasca was starting to fade and I realized it was fading, there was this amazing sense of relief and love that was left in its kind of aftermath. And I was marveling at looking at the world and everything about it that like I didn't like. And with this view of love and this like unconditional feeling of love, everything just felt okay. It just felt okay. And the shaman was always saying, everything is perfect. And I really got that in that moment. Like things are perfect the way they are. And it was like this deep feeling of acceptance and love. And I had never really felt that unconditional acceptance and love before. And the next day, it really like had a strong impact on me. Like, wow, why has my life been lacking this sense of unconditional love? And naturally, I was sort of blaming everyone. I was like, it's my parents' fault. It's society. It's, it's my friends or my lovers or, you know, like people haven't been loving me unconditionally. That was the problem. But I gradually realized with a lot of tears that it was me. It was me who didn't feel unconditional love towards myself for some reason. And as I was saying before, as it's all interconnected, it's like, if I can't feel unconditional love for myself, I'm never going to be able to feel it from someone else either. I'm just not going to be able to fathom it. So I went on this long journey, like this six-month journey from that moment to try to figure out, like, where's my self-love? Like, how do I find it? How do I teach myself to love myself? What's that going to take? And it was this really beautiful moment. I was like crossing the ocean in Costa Rica when I was feeling this amazing sense of love for how beautiful the environment was. And it suddenly dawned on me that like, wait, I have all this love in me. I have all this love for people and nature and places. Maybe that love is self-love. It's like all of the things I love are a relationship between me and those things. And without me, I wouldn't be feeling this love. So I sort of just realized that it was a reorientation to be able to take my love for others and bask in it and say, this is self-love too. And since then, I've been increasingly kind of honoring that when I feel an intense sense of love, it's actually just as much about loving myself and loving life as it is about loving the object of my affection. That was so beautiful. And you also wrote about how when reflecting back upon past experiences, that there's an element of forgiveness in this and also grieving after which you can find acceptance for oneself and anything that we may have done in the past, including not loving ourselves and recognizing how perhaps we have spent our entire life not accepting and loving ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, having these breakthroughs around shame, naturally, like, regret comes up for all the years that I feel like I missed out on by living under shame and all these really misguided strategies that I was employing and and how hurtful that was to other people. And strategies like narcissism and, you know, self-aggrandizement. So it's really easy to have these breakthroughs that are really healing but then look back and have a lot of regret and shame about the past. 
And so it's once again shame kind of like trickily shifting and finding a new arena to berate you. And I think it's so important to go through both a kind of logic piece, acknowledging that you did the best you could with the energy and knowledge that you had, but then as well, just really compassionate forgiveness process of looking at all of these like hopes and expectations and mistakes and being able to just really grieve for them and honor that like that was really tough and that was not the ideal way it could have gone and that that is not what we would have hoped to really just allow yourself to grieve through it because in my experience like once I've grieved over those sort of like hopes and expectations for a different life that I can then see again more clearly that there is stuff to be valued, even though it didn't go the way we would have loved for it to have gone. And almost certainly what you realize is that this healing moment that was so powerful in your life wouldn't have happened if you hadn't have had those missteps and traumas and problems along the way. And you kind of are left wondering, would I rather have been just sort of like led a perfectly happy, but in a way sort of superficial life? Or would I rather be where I am now, which is to have gone through all this hardship, but because of it, to have really tried hard and had some breakthroughs and some healing epiphanies that led to real self-awareness and real depth of understanding of the full, you know, truth of what life is. And I think you'll find that it's arguable that this place that you've gotten to was perhaps worth it. And that balance is a journey that we all have to go on, wherein we still honor that what happened to us was not okay, perhaps, if there was like trauma or abuse or something like that, but that the way that we've been able to overcome it or the journey of overcoming it that we've committed to makes it very valuable. So there's a delicate balance there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was thinking maybe we could end on another note. In our culture, we don't have examples of how to guide young people into adulthood. Could you talk about the three stages of becoming a healthy adult that exists in indigenous cultures? And since we don't have that in our culture, what we can do in our own lives? Yeah, I was really inspired by one of Carl Jung's books, Man and His Symbols, in which he talked about these, he actually called them primitive cultures, that had these initiation rites where when children reached a certain age of maturity, they were actually sent out into the wilderness to fend for themselves. And the more I think about those initiation rites, the more wisdom I see in them, because I'm imagining that, you know, as a child, as we talked about, it's that kind of brainwashing phase where we're just taking everything in and believing it all, and we don't have the full power of an adult yet. We're submissive to this culture. But then once we reach an age where we have enough knowledge and skills, when we are put in a position where we have to start thinking and acting for ourselves, 
we're basically forced to discover our own power and forced to see that our ideas are just as valid as anyone else's. Because look, here we are out in the world, like surviving. And that's sort of like becoming an empowered adult, where we get in touch with the personal side. You know, that's where we get the self-love and the self-trust and the empowerment and the sovereignty. So as a child, it's all about the we and learning to fit in. And then this initiation right is all about the I. And then the third stage is the integration, where the now adult comes back and learns how to be their honest self with their authentic values, but in a relationship with their community and with their group to both not lose them and become a dependent child again, but also to not fall too much into being just singular, just one person. So it's almost like the perfect way to get someone into this balance we talked about between self and other, between group and individual needs. And I think that as parents, we can start to think about child rearing as a kind of journey where we are trying to gradually get our children to a place where they are equals with us. You know, it doesn't have to mean thrusting them out into the wilderness to live on their own. That might be a bit harsh. But I think a lot of us kind of cling to our identities as parent or cling to our identities as child long past when it has utility. And there's perhaps a lot more to be gained from how can I help my child learn to become both equal to me when the time is right, and in doing so, they actually become their own parent. How can I teach my child not just that I love them, but how they can love themselves? And not just that I'm there to have their back, but how they can have their own back. And so it's like all the functions as a parent that I am trying to provide in support, I want to make sure that my child is able to enact those functions for themselves. And, you know, I'm not a parent, so I don't have like super specifics on how one would go about this. But I think just being aware of this kind of journey that ultimately a child could take, where we want to empower them to be equals and to be ultimately their own parent who loves and nourishes and feeds and protects themselves, that knowledge in itself is, I think, quite different then a lot of people are thinking about it. And they might think, oh, I have to be a parent for my child, you know, in their 20s and in their 30s. And this can be a real inspiration to try to give over that role to the child themselves. Does that make sense? Does that answer the question? Oh, yeah. That was so beautiful. I love that. How can people find out more about your work? Probably the best way would be to go to my website, www.discomfortable.net. And that's basically comfort with dis in front of it. Or you can just search AJ Bond or search Discomfortable. And on my website, I have a bunch of podcasts that you can listen to about shame for free. And I also have a book that I just released published by North Atlantic Books. It's also called Discomfortable. 
and it lays out a lot of what we've been discussing in further detail. Plus, it talks about a lot of my experiences with shame, and I really tried to be vulnerable. I wanted it to be amusing, but also very candid about my struggles personally with shame. So there's sort of like a whole stream of the book that's autobiographical. But then I also wanted to put all the kind of best theories and thinking behind shame that have inspired me as well to kind of weave those together. So that's what you can get from the book. And then I also do coaching online. So if you're interested, there's an opportunity where we can get together and talk about our shame and kind of just like create a space where it's okay to be as transparent and honest as we feel comfortable being and feel that space of acceptance can be really powerful. So those are kind of the main offerings on my website. I'm also on Twitter. If you're on Twitter, I I love to chat with people on Twitter as well. AJ, this has been a wonderful conversation. I've enjoyed talking with you so much. Yeah, me too. I really appreciated your your questions were so thoughtful. And it was like, I really get the impression that you have lived through all of this stuff and been on your own journey of getting discomfortable with shame. So I feel like a really kindred spirit and I really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm in the middle of that. But yeah, and I so enjoyed the book and had such tremendous appreciation for how you presented everything in it. Wow, I really appreciate hearing that. It's a bit of a vulnerable moment releasing the book. It's, you know, I've never written a book before and I have some shame coming up lately about like, oh, I hope my lack of experience writing a book doesn't get in the way of people hearing a message that is just so important to me. And so hearing that the message did get through to you, it really like is healing some of my shame around the book itself in this moment, to be honest, and is just making me feel relief and joy. So I'm really appreciating it. Yeah, I can totally understand that sense of shame. I often experience that around my radio show. And it's a funny Mm -hmm. dynamic that still rears its, its head. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, so important to name that like, I still feel shame all the time. And it's moments like this where I can talk to you about it and say, yeah, I have some shame about this and get that empathy from you. You know, you just said like, yeah, AJ, I know that feeling and I have it too. And like right now in this moment, I feel like more connected to you. And I just like, I want to celebrate every moment where I'm not feeling shame. And this is one of those moments. So I'm really like appreciating and celebrating this interview and everything that you've shared. And I also want to say again how impressed I was with this book and how someone as young as you are could have amassed that. But I've also been experiencing a lot of other young people who exhibit tremendous wisdom and insight. So, you know, I'm seeing it through my older eyes and how slow and dim my generation (laughs) (laughs) has been, you know. Yeah, when I hear that, what comes to me is that there could be a bit of shame there for you, I imagine. And I want to honor that it's so clear to me with my own parents, for example, that the older generation passes a baton to the younger generation of healing. And your generation has done so much healing that our generation is starting, you know, I don't love the metaphor of a relay race exactly, but 
we're starting our healing journey so much further along because of the healing journey of your generation. So it's really like, in a way, I have you and my parents to thank, even though, you know, like there's all kinds of shame and conditioning that we still have transferred to the younger generations. There's also a lot of healing and acceptance that has allowed our generation to take it even further. So I can only imagine, you know, what the generation below this is going to do. And I want to share in that because we are all teaching each other. And it's both understandable that there might be some comparison and shame. And there's also like this beautiful connection. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to me, it's really beautiful when I see young people starting out so far ahead of where I started and also moving at such a more rapid pace and with so many less obstacles to deal with because they have already been exposed, not necessarily resolved, but easier to see at this point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, yeah, again, it's been so great to talk with you. I'm so grateful. Thank you. It's been so great talking to you as well. Thanks for having me on your show. My guest has been A.J. Bond. He's a writer, filmmaker, shame educator, and the author of this really wonderful book we've been talking about, Discomfortable, What is Shame and How Do We Break Its Hold? That's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again, you can find this and all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com slash WGDR. That's soundcloud.com slash WGDR. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. <laughs>